Welcome to a special episode of the Math Ed Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Otten, from the University of Missouri. Dr. James Hebert from the University of Delaware was the 2014 recipient of the Senior Scholar Award from SIG RME. As the award recipient, he was invited to give a presentation at the annual meeting of AERA in Chicago, Illinois, April 2015. Dr. Hebert was gracious enough to allow me to record his presentation so I can present that to you here in its entirety, and the next voice you hear will be that of Dr. Jim Hebert. What I'd like to do um, this evening is to share with you some of my current thoughts about how we can begin working toward or continue working toward improving the mathematical experiences of students in school classrooms. I'd like to do this by creating several images for you. These are images that have emerged for me over the years and have been these really influential, mind-changing images. You've all had them, you know, the kind where when you see something in a new way, you can't remember what it was like to think about it the other way. So the images that I'd like to share are ones that have occurred to me along the way and have formed the way I currently think about how we might improve mathematics education for students. And I thought the best way of sharing these images with you would be to tell stories. And the, the stories I'm going to tell are stories that describe how these images were triggered, how they were shaped. And so it's story time. I'm just going to tell stories. I'd actually like to begin by thanking all of the individual people who helped shape these stories for me because the credit goes to them, certainly as much as to myself. But there are too many of these to name individually. But I would like to acknowledge my colleagues at the University of Delaware, who have been a tremendous group to work with over the years. And they are the reason that I have been at one place much longer than I ever thought I would. I'd like to thank my colleagues on the Tim's video study that I worked with for over five years. They influenced my thinking a lot. I'd like to acknowledge the co-authors I've worked with, and I'd like to acknowledge a number of classroom teachers that I've gotten to know and that have really changed the way I've um, thought about things. So, first story. The first story I'm going to tell is actually a story about a classroom teacher. This is a teacher who teaches seventh grade math is a well-prepared teacher, hardworking, conscientious, high-performing. She's the kind of teacher that we would like our kids in her classroom. And during the last academic year, she was asked to implement three different reforms during the year. She was asked to implement the Common Core she was asked to prepare her students for new assessments that were coming that would be aligned with the Common Core. And she was asked to participate in a new evaluation system where administrators would come in and use a new observation instrument to evaluate the quality of her teaching. So how did all these things play out? The teachers in her school received almost no professional development on the Common Core. In fact, some of them showed up the first day not even really knowing what this thing called Common Core meant. 
but they did receive new textbooks, new textbooks that were presumably aligned with the Common Core. Those textbooks came the day before school started, so there wasn't a lot of time to plan. They also got a pacing guide from the school district that told them at which chapter they should be at what time, so they would cover all the content standards in seventh grade by the end of the year, and their kids would be prepared for the end of the year test. The school district also required that she give unit chapter tests instead of tests she made up, and the unit tests were made up of items that were supposed to be like those end-of-the-year assessments that are aligned with the Common Core, the items were incredibly hard. It takes kids about three days to finish those tests, uh, and they come every chapter. The effect of the new curriculum, the pacing guides, the unit tests from the district was to ramp up incredibly the expectations for her seventh grade students. They came into seventh grade according to the school district being able to do common core seventh grade stuff, expecting that they had done six years of common core stuff. But of course they hadn't. They hadn't done any of the first six years. Partway through the school year, the principal said, oh, by the way, since we've kind of moved into this thing real quickly, we're not going to give that end of the year common core assessment. We're going to go back and give the one that you guys are used to using, the state assessment that we've done for many years. And when the teacher said, okay, so how is this going to work? We have a curriculum aligned with the common core. We have pacing guides. We have unit tests that are aligned with the common core. And now we're going to have an end of the year test that is over a completely different set of material. And they were told, um, why don't you just throw in a bunch of lessons that you used last year and that'll help get, get kids ready and everything will be fine. Then she was evaluated by a new observation instrument and most of the teachers didn't know what was on the instrument. Um, the vice principal and the principal came in, checked off things and they were um, evaluated by this new instrument. So who made these decisions? The teachers definitely did not make these decisions. Uh, and the teachers actually didn't know who made these decisions. They didn't know where they came from. They were asked to implement them, uh, but they had no idea where they came from. The professional development, the curriculum, the unit tests, the end of the year tests, the evaluation, all of those things had like zero alignment. Who makes these kind of decisions? And how did the seventh grade teacher respond to all of this? Well, you can imagine. Imagine you're in her situation. And the reason I tell her story, by the way, is it's not just her story. It's the story of thousands of teachers around the country who are being caught in our current reform implementation process. But how did this seventh grade teacher respond? Well, she came home sometimes very discouraged. She was usually quite stressed out. Some days she came home and she cried. I mean, like literally cried. Why? 
because she felt like she was really damaging her students. She felt like the kids in her classroom were beginning to feel really dumb. They were being turned off by mathematics. In the school district in which she teaches, she teaches some very good seventh grade students. She felt like they were getting turned off to mathematics and they would probably not be interested in mathematics in the future. So why am I starting with such a downer? <laughs> um, with such a really kind of depressing story. I'm starting with this because it's real. This stuff is affecting real people. It's affecting real teachers. It's affecting real students. And it's happening all around us now. We've got to figure out as a community how to do something about this. I mean, we should actually probably be demonstrating in the streets, in front of school districts, state departments of education, instead of listening to me talking. Um, because it's a serious problem. It's affecting people's lives. So the question is, how can we stop this craziness? How can we implement good ideas like the Common Core in ways that actually improve lives, in ways that improve teachers' lives, in ways that improve student lives. Okay, that's image one, the image of a teacher being caught in this kind of reform pressure. Image two, so implementing good ideas. So I want to think about implementation a little bit. A number of years ago, I think it was Ron Gallimore who suggested that I read this article by Mark Lipsy. The title is Theories of Treatments. I'm just going to use the phrase theories of implementation and it works equally well given what he says. Um, but one quote from the article is um, essentially that to develop an implementation plan we need an explicit theory about the nature and details of the change mechanism which the cause of interest is expected to produce the effect of interest. So just for the sake of this image, let's take the common core as the cause of interest and let's take students' mathematics learning, deeper and better mathematics learning as the effect. So we've got a cause and we've got an effect. Essentially what Mark Lipsy says in this article is how is this cause going to translate into this effect? I mean exactly, step by step by step by step. What are the links in the chain? What has to happen at each step to increase the chances that the introduction of the Common Core is going to result in improved student mathematics learning? That's the idea, right? So that's an implementation theory. That's the image I have of an implementation theory. So the question is, did the school district that our seventh grade teacher teach in have an implementation theory? This is kind of a rhetorical question now, right? <laughs> um, given the alignment, of course they didn't have a theory. But I'm going to mention two other indicators that I think are really critical that also suggest they didn't have a theory. The first is, they didn't consult with teachers about how these things would be implemented. They never asked. They didn't ask teachers, so if we're going to implement this, what are the problems that you're going to face? They didn't even ask during the year, so how's it going? 
if the district had wanted to develop an implementation theory, they wouldn't have known what problems they were trying to solve, right? Because they didn't know what problems teachers were going to have when faced with all of these pressures. A second indicator, and one I've alluded to a minute ago, is that as most states and school districts are doing, they're implementing the common core grades 1 through 12 all at the same time, in the same year. Now, what hypothesis can you imagine that would fit into a theory that would say our chances are better for success if we do this all at the same time and if we expect 7th graders to have had all of 6th grade Common Core and the same for 12th graders, right? What kind of a hypothesis would you put into a theory that would suggest that's a good idea? What's so astounding to me about this is that we have known for a very long time in this country that implementing good ideas is much, much harder than creating them. We've got plenty of good ideas. We have almost no stomach for facing the implementation problem as seriously as we need to and as carefully as we need to. My biggest concern is not how we're teaching today. It's that we have no way of getting better. It's amazing to me that we keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. All right, I'm going to move on to something a little more optimistic. If we wanted to develop good implementation theories, where would we look for good ideas? Well, there is an approach that is often described as disciplined inquiry that creates database solutions to complex problems. That approach has now often come under the name of improvement science and it's had a long run in other professions and it's been very successfully applied to solving complex problems in other professions. So the third image I want to try to create for you is what improvement science can look like in other professions. I'm going to tell two stories. The first one is perhaps the most successful clinical medicine treatment in modern history. And that's the treatment of cystic fibrosis. In the 1950s, the life expectancy for someone with cystic fibrosis was preschool, four to five years. Currently, it's in the 40s. The average life expectancy is in the 40s. That's an incredibly dramatic improvement. And here's what's so striking about this. That improvement has come without any big breakthrough in drugs, without any big breakthrough in treatments, without any randomized control trials that show one treatment is better than another. It's come about by implementing treatments that were already known, but doing it more effectively. And so I'm going to describe the story of how these principles from improvement science were applied in the treatment of cystic fibrosis, 
And what I'd like you to do is think of the analogies to classroom teaching and learning in mathematics, because I'm, I think there are some, and I'm going to try to draw them later. So in the late 1950s and early 60s, there was a cystic fibrosis treatment center at the Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. And that group of doctors, nurses, and so on decided that they simply were not satisfied with the life expectancy of their patients. And so their director, a fellow named Leroy Matthews, got them all together and said, we've got to do better than this. How are we going to improve the life expectancy of our patients? They decided the first thing they needed to do was to understand the problem from the user's point of view. And in this case, the users were the patients. What's the problem from the patient's point of view? What are the problems they face as cystic fibrosis patients? As they followed their patients into their homes, into the schools, and so on, um, they found that the treatment that had been used for years, which is this sort of breathing coughing treatment, where you try to expel the sort of mucus and phlegm from your lungs so you're not so congested and can breathe easier. They watched their patients try to do this and they decided that's the problem. They're not doing this as well as they could. They don't have the technique to do this well. So now this group had a problem that they were going to try to solve. They all agreed this was the problem. They had a shared goal, which was improving the lives the length of the lifespan of their patients. And now they got together and thought about how are we going to improve the coughing technique of our patients? And they brought all their patients in one by one. They had long sessions with doctors who had decided on better techniques for coughing. So for example, if you raise your arms really high and you cough, it expels more mucus from your lungs. They found that out by trial and error experimentation and so on. If you cough from your deep diaphragm, it helps. So they trained their patients in coughing. How do you cough more effectively? And they found when they followed the first few patients that they had trained, that they were doing better. They were feeling better. They were breathing better. This treatment was actually helping. So they tried it on more treatments, they did more small tests of these small changes, and they collected data very carefully on the kind of treatments that they were employing and the kind of success rates they were having. And they noticed dramatic enough effects that other centers said, gosh, what are you guys in Cleveland doing? Because the life expectancy in your center is rising and ours isn't. And so they began sharing data with other centers. Now the National Cystic Fibrosis Center Foundation has a central clearinghouse where all of the centers that treat cystic fibrosis share data publicly. It's the only, uh, or at least one of the only kind of networks in, in clinical medicine that operates today where they share data publicly. They learn from each other. So what one center learns, the other centers all figure out and they all practice it. So the best anybody knows becomes standard practice across the field. That's how the life expectancy has improved. 
identifying the problem from the user's point of view, having a clear shared goal from everybody involved, getting ideas from everybody in the system, running small tests of small changes, accumulating the data over time, sharing the data across people who are working on the same problem. That's improvement science at work. And it has an amazing story in cystic fibrosis. The second story I'm going to tell is a much more recent story, and it's like an abbreviated version of the cystic fibrosis story. But I think it's just so cool. In the fall of 2014, the death rate of West Africans infected by the Ebola virus was 70%. 70%. At the Hastings Treatment Center in Freetown, Sierra Leone, the group of health workers got together and they did the same thing as the people at Cleveland. They said, this is not acceptable. We have to do better than this. We can do better than this. The director of the center brought all of the health workers together. They talked about, what do you think we can do to help our patients to reduce the death rate? They brainstormed lots of ideas. Everybody had an idea. They eventually, focused on the dehydration problem. Because many of the nurses that were doing the daily care noticed that as soon as the patients became dehydrated, they deteriorated very quickly. So they decided, here's our problem. We need to keep our patients hydrated. While they were brainstorming ideas about how to hydrate patients, they had their first idea was intravenous fluids. That's the natural response for anybody in the medical profession if you want to keep a sick person hydrated. But they all knew the last thing you want to do with an Ebola patient is put a needle, inject an intravenous needle into their arm. That's like the most dangerous thing a healthcare worker can do, right? To get infected themselves. So they left that aside. They tried to think of other ideas like let's make these people drink every half hour. But then the people who were caring for them said, no, when, as soon as they slip down that sort of threshold of dehydration, they don't want to drink. They're too sick. You can't force liquids down their throat. Finally, they ended up saying, I, we don't know what else we can do except the intravenous solution. A couple senior nurses raised their hands and volunteered to do the work of injecting the needles and starting the intravenous process. These were heroic nurses. At first the group didn't want them to do that, but then they decided that was their only shot. Then they began brainstorming ideas together about how you do this in a protective, safe way. They began doing that. They tested the patients, they tested the nurses. By the beginning of November in 2014, the death rate in the center had dropped from 70% to 40% dramatic drop, and none of the nurses had been infected by the Ebola virus. A really sort of quick application of improvement science at work, running through those cycles, but in a a very quick period of time. Image four. What would improvement science look like in education? Some of you who read The Educational Researcher might remember a recent article by Catherine Lewis, not our Catherine Lewis, uh, but a Catherine Lewis with a C, um, (laughs) 
with almost this title, Improvement Science and Education. I'm going to tell two stories that are quite different than the picture she painted in that um, article, but they're the image I have of what improvement science could look like. So story one comes from when I was working on writing the Teaching Gap book with Jim Stigler. And we were, of course, looking after looking at the videos in the Tim's video study, we were impressed with the lessons that were coming out of Japan. Some of you have seen those. They're really interesting, sort of high-quality lessons, very polished. But we were actually more interested in the fact that when you took a random sample of teachers in Japan, they could all teach these lessons that looked very much the same. Knowing how hard it is to scale up any kind of instructional change in the US, we're wondering, how do teachers selected at random in Japan all know how to teach these same kind of lessons? Fortunately, Jim had a doctoral student, Makoto Yoshida, who was working in Japan at that same time on his dissertation. He was observing a group of first grade teachers who were trying to improve a lesson they were going to be teaching a few weeks in the future. He was recording their meetings, he was sending in transcripts of their meetings, he was sending in drafts of his dissertation and so on. One evening, Jim called me, he usually called me in the evenings, um, and he said, James, you've got to listen to this. And he began reading a transcript from one of the first grade teacher's meetings. After listening to that transcript, I have never thought about teaching the same way again. I can't remember what it was like to think about it differently. So the transcript was of first grade teachers working on the first lesson where their students would subtract a single digit number from a two digit number. This would be their introduction to that idea. The reason they thought this was such an important lesson is they wanted first graders to understand how you could take advantage of the tens structure of the two-digit number when you did the subtraction. So they had already spent several weeks talking about this lesson. This was like the fourth or fifth week. They met Thursdays two hours every afternoon to work on this lesson. In this lesson that Jim read the transcript from, they were picking the opening problem in the lesson. I'm thinking, my gosh, how do you spend that much time talking about teaching? This is like the fourth meeting, and now they're picking the opening problem in the lesson. Well, how did teachers spend their time in this meeting? And then you'll get an idea of how you can spend so much time talking about teaching. The textbook suggested that the teachers present either 12 minus 9 or 13 minus 9 as the opening problem. And the textbook also suggested that the teachers listen for students to use a particular strategy, and if not, sort of guide them to see that you could subtract 9 from 10 and then add on two more to get three as your answer. That would be a way you could take advantage of the 10 structure because subtracting from 10 is very easy. These first grade teachers said, well, yeah, we like that strategy, 
but we would also like our first graders to see another strategy that takes advantage of the 10 structure. We would like them to be able to break up the 9 into 2 and 7, subtract 2, that gets you down to 10, subtract 7 more, that's 3, that's the answer. We would like both strategies. And then they said, yeah, but you know, 9, our first graders would not be able to break up 9 into parts like that. They wouldn't think of doing that. So we're going to have to change the problem. So they dropped the number down to 7 and 8, and they thought about 15 minus 8, 15 minus 7. They talked about that for a while, the pros and cons of using that number combination. They finally convinced themselves, because one of them had read a research study, that you know, beginning first graders at this level, 15 is a pretty high number for them to work with. Let's lower that a little bit. So let's choose either 13 minus 7 or 12 minus 7. But which one should we choose? And so they talked for about a half hour which one of those two would be the better combination. Finally, they decided that the winning argument was that, that kids in their classes, at least one of the teachers was sure about this, that her first graders would be able to break up 7 into 2 and 5 more easily than into 3 and 4. That would allow them to understand both strategies that would take advantage of the 10 structure of the number system. So the meeting came to an end, and they set an agenda for the following meeting of creating a story problem in which this problem would be embedded. All right, then to sort of finish out the story, what some of you know this kind of process. So what they did then was a few weeks later, they taught this lesson. They all observed one of them teach. They looked at how students responded. They looked at whether students actually used both strategies, whether they understood both strategies. They collected data from students. They came back. They revised. They refined the lesson. And then when they thought it was working really well, they published it for the school. So the next year's first grade teachers would have access to that lesson. In Japan, if you're a teacher, you can actually go to the bookstore and buy books that have lessons being developed by teachers that have data behind them that show these are effective if you have students of this kind. That's how the thing spreads across the country. All right, improvement science at work in education. Look at the problem from the user's point of view. Think about what your goal is. You can fill these in now, right? Using this first grade story. What's the problem from the kid's point of view? What's your goal as teachers? brainstorming ideas about how to do this, collecting data, refining the product, trying it out again, saving it, sharing it with other people. Improvement science at work. Okay, second story. In the fall of 2002, I found myself sitting in a meeting at the University of Delaware with a faculty colleague and two or three doctoral students. We were working on improving a lesson for a content course that our pre-service teachers were required to take. Two years earlier than that, we were meeting as a faculty, and as sometimes as a math ed faculty group, and as sometimes those groups do, we were complaining about the fact that our failure rates were too high in these courses, some of the students weren't doing their homework the way they should, they weren't coming into college as prepared as they should, and so on. And I remember Ann Morris asking a question, which was sort of just 
kind of rhetorical question, but she said, um, you know, what would happen if we would take responsibility for the student's problem? If we would look at that problem from the student's point of view, and if we would accept responsibility for doing whatever we could to make it more successful experience for the students. So, fast forward two years, we all accepted that challenge. We had now designed lessons for each one of our class sessions in the math content courses for our pre-service teachers, and we were working now to improve the lessons. In this particular meeting, all of the instructors were teaching sections of the same course. And we were trying to decide what fraction number combination, coincidentally, fraction number combination would work better than the semester before. Because we saw notes in the lessons that the instructors had used the semester before, which said this number combination doesn't work well. The point of the number combination was to surface a misconception, a very common misconception of pre-service teachers about subtracting fractions. Because we thought if that would get surfaced and made explicit, we could work on resolving that misconception with the pre-service teachers. So, we brainstormed ideas about what a better number combination would be. And after about a two-hour meeting, we finally decided, okay, let's try this. Let's use this number combination. And we inserted that into the lesson. The following Tuesday, at eight o'clock in the morning, this lesson was taught in the first of our sections. The rest of us were all in the back of the room while the instructor of the eight o'clock session was teaching this lesson. As the lesson moved along, the instructor came close to the point where they were gonna present this number combination. And I could feel my heart rate <laughs> increasing. And I could feel my sort of anxiety level raise. And I looked at my colleagues and I could actually see like the tension on their faces. We were all leaning forward, wondering what was gonna happen. And the instructor presented that number combination and the pre-service teachers did exactly what we predicted they would do. It was so exciting. <laughs> Seriously, if we had not been standing, if we had not been sitting in the back of that room, we would have jumped out of our chairs, we would have hugged each other, we were all incredibly excited. And I thought at the time, this is really weird. I've never had this experience before. And then I realized that what was happening is that I was emotionally feeling the same feeling that I had intellectually when I heard the transcript that Jim Stigler read about the teachers working on that lesson. There's a big emotional part to this, and that is that what happened when we worked together on designing a lesson is we took all of our egos out of the process, we took the performance flair of the instructor out of the process, we took the personalities of the people out of the process, and we focused only on the teaching method the act, instructional activity we were gonna use. And that was a joint prediction, we all shared it. If it worked, we all took credit. If it didn't, we all accepted responsibility. So, what I realized is both at an emotional level and an intellectual level, instruction to me 
applying improvement science techniques means focusing on teaching, not the individual people, but the process you use in the classroom. We've continued this process for 15 years. That's one of the reasons it's been so cool to be at Delaware. And we've, begin we've been improving lessons over time. We now have data that show that in fact our pre-service teachers are performing much better than they were 15 years ago. We also have data now that as they move into the field, our courses are having an effect on the way they teach three and four years out. So all of this hard, intensive work, these small changes accumulate to result in really dramatic effects over time. Improvement science provides really good ideas for developing implementation theories in education. So I want to return just for a second to our seventh grade teacher. What would this seventh grade teacher do with the opportunities that the Japanese first grade teachers had or that we have at the University of Delaware? With the luxury of working with colleagues to improve lessons that would be sort of masterful implementations of the common core standards. Imagine what would happen if her school district had developed an implementation for the common core that had taken the teacher's point of view to begin with. Well, one thing that wouldn't have happened, we wouldn't at this point in the country be spending so much energy and effort in designing accountability systems that try to incentivize good teaching with merit pay. Because, have these guys ever talked to a teacher? <laughs> you know, that whole idea, it's like they think the problem is that teachers actually have several ways of teaching. They have the poor method, <laughs> and they use that, you know, as their default. And then, if they know they're going to get merit increase, they say, oh my gosh, now I'm going to pull out my effective method. <laughs> and now I'm going to be really effective. I mean, seriously, that kind of policy is trying to solve the wrong problem. It's an implementation theory that is designed in entirely the wrong problem. My guess is that if you ask this seventh grade teacher, What's the problem from your point of view? What should the implementation theory look like? The teacher would first of all say, we would like to be part of the discussion about what that theory is. And then if you said, okay, so suppose you're part of that discussion, what would you identify as some problems that the implementation theory should help with? And my guess is the teacher would say two things. One is they need time and they need opportunities to learn with their colleagues how to do this kind of teaching that implements the common core. Does that sound reasonable? I think that's what the seventh grade teacher would say. But the question is, wouldn't this take an awfully long time for this to happen? The fifth image. In March of 2005, I was invited to a breakfast, a thing called the Congressional Breakfast that's put on by the Aspen Institute. 
they do this regularly, or they used to, I don't know if they still do. About once a month, they would have a breakfast for the Congress people in Washington. And they would put out a flyer, and they would say, here's the topic for the morning. If you want a free breakfast, and you want to talk about this topic for an hour, come and join us. And so I was asked to talk for 10 minutes about what the Tim's video study said about how we can improve education in the US. And then they would ask questions for 50 minutes while they were eating. <laughs> and so I thought, yeah, that sounds fun. So I, <laughs> I went and gave the presentation, 10 minutes worth, and then they asked questions. And they actually asked some pretty good questions, and we had a really interesting discussion. I, I in particular, remember some questions from Lamar Alexander, the senator from Tennessee, who's the former Secretary of Education. He asked some really good questions. And he came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I'm really interested in some of the things you had to say, so I'm going to have one of my staff members call you tomorrow. And I'm thinking, yeah, right, sure, but that, you know, that's nice. Um, the following day, I got a call from the staff member. And the staff member said, okay, so Senator Alexander is interested in some of this stuff, so could you tell us a little bit more about your ideas? And so basically, I told him stories of the kind that I've told tonight about what I thought it would take to improve students' learning in the United States. And the staff member said, okay, um, how many years do you think that would take for uh, students to show a significant increase in the standardized achievement tests that we give? And I said, uh, wow, at least 10 years, maybe 15 years? And he laughed. He literally laughed. And he said, you're kidding, right? And I said, no. And he said, um, what's your two-year plan? <laughs> and I said, uh, there is no two-year plan. And he made some comment about, oh man, you crazy educational researchers. Um, and he hung up, and I've never heard from them again. We're incredibly addicted to quick fixes. So, in 2025, when we have some new reforms, are we going to be smart enough to think about developing implementation theories, joining with school districts, with state departments of education, developing theories that make sense, maybe even theories that use some ideas from improvement science? If we don't, we're going to continue to live in a country with no mechanism to improve education for students. And our seventh grade teacher will long have left the profession. One time, uh, when Jim and I, again, back to the teaching gap, we were having a conversation about something we wanted to work on, uh, some point we wanted to make, and Jim asked the question to me. We were sort of playing around with ideas, and he said, you know, um, I wonder if we wanted to guarantee that we were teaching better 15 years from now than we teach today. I mean, guarantee 
that in the average classroom, students would be learning more effectively than they are today, what would we do tomorrow? And I've always loved that question. I've loved that question because I think it directs our attention to an idea of incremental, steady, lasting improvement over time. It, it directs our attention to getting on a path that puts a lot of work into implementation theories and uses ideas from improvement science to create theories that might actually work. Thank you very much. <laughs>